0: W media.
1: Spy Talk, a podcast at the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, national security, and military operations with Jeff Stein and Jean Meserve. Hello, I'm Jean Meserve, and welcome to another episode of Spy Talk. Jeff Stein is away this week. The war in Ukraine has entered its third brutal, ugly, deadly month, and we're going to talk in a bit about submarines and whether or not they are being used in the conflict. But first, a trip in the Wayback Machine.
2: Tonight, I can report to the American people and to the world. The United States has conducted an operation that killed Osama bin Laden, the leader of Al Qaeda, and a terrorist who's responsible for the murder of thousands of innocent men, women, and
1: children. That was President Barack Obama speaking to the nation 11 years ago after the successful raid on bin Laden's secret hideaway in Abbottabad, Pakistan. During that operation in which bin Laden was killed, special forces retrieved thousands of pages of secret al-Qaeda documents. Many of them have now been declassified, and we'll talk later in the podcast with Nellie Lahoud about how they change our understanding of recent history. She's the author of the new book, The Bin Laden Papers, How the Abbottabad Raid Revealed the Truth About Al-Qaeda, Its Leader, and His Family. But first, Jeff got to dig into a cool subject central to many a spy thriller, submarines. He talked with Christopher Drew, co-author with Sherry Sontag of Blind Man's Bluff, the untold story of American submarine espionage. Originally published in 1998, it remains a classic of both naval and intelligence literature. Drew is also the co-author with Robert Ballard of Into the Deep, a memoir from The Man Who Found the Titanic, published in 2021. He also spent 22 years at The New York Times as an award-winning investigative reporter and special projects editor.
3: Christopher Drew, it's an honor to have you on the Spy Talk podcast. I've always been fascinated by submarine, submarine warfare. It might have started when I saw Run Silent, Run Deep as a kid in the late 1950s, all the way through Hunt for Red October, I had the thrill of my own lifetime when I got to ride on a submarine uh, as part of my army intelligence training. What is it about submarine warfare that's fascinated so many millions of people judging by the success of those movies and and the continued uh, success and sales of your book, Blind Man's Bluff?
2: I think part of it is that it's hidden under the deep. So there's a mystery about it. And I think the other part of it, it's very human. You know, people, men are at risk. I mean, you think about satellites and you think about so many electronic ways that we collect intelligence that are pretty antiseptic when it comes to old fashioned putting people at risk. But you send a submarine out into a hostile area and you've got 140, 150 people on board, and um, you know, back uh, in the in the height of the Cold War, when we wrote about some of the special project subs that would tap in the Soviet cables and um, retrieve missile parts from Soviet missile tests, you know, they would let out divers on the ocean floor, you know, right near Soviet harbors. The d- divers would talk about hearing the warships overhead, three or four hundred feet above them, and the whole crew would practice self-destruct charges uh, drills on the way over. They had charges around the ship. So, you know, what other kind of intelligence puts that many people at risk? Um, My God,
3: those missions, they're all hair-raising. One after another, uh, I should tell or confess to listeners that I gave a rave review to... Blind man's bluff in the New York Times when it came out in 1998. Let's let's tell us a war story or two. There's just so many of them. Of course, there are the espionage missions in which they tapped Soviet cables, right in Soviet waters. But one of them was one of the more amusing stories is how they slipped into a Soviet harbor and popped pop their periscope up right outside a dock. Tell us that story.
2: Exactly. That was in the early days of the nuclear subs in the early 60s. And um, when you think about it, with all the controls we try to have on everything, basically, once we sent these submarines out, whether they were the regular attack subs like this one, who um, were trying to keep track of the Soviet developments and new missile subs and, and watching them as the Soviets put them through their paces and intercept communications, Uh, or the few subs that did the special projects like cable tapping, um, you know, they were out there in their view uh, to prevent a Pearl Harbor in the nuclear age. And they were supposed to maintain radio silence because we didn't want them uh, detected over there. So despite all the safeguards we have for everything and all the layers of bureaucracy and all the permissions that normally need to be granted, you had 35-year-old submarine captains who were in charge and mm-hmm. nobody to talk to, nobody to answer to. And mm-hmm. so some of these guys were were cowboys. And, and they went right into this harbor and went right into this harbor, especially, you know, in the early days. They were taking big risks.
3: So they uh, submarine captains are they cowboys by their very nature or were they? Well,
2: it depends on which ones when you talk to the crew members because the crew members love the cowboys because they love to mix it up but then if if the crew members thought uh you weren't taking enough chances and there's something called periviz, where the crew can sit in the mess and watch on a tv screen what the captain sees through the periscope Mm -hmm. and if the crew thought you weren't gathering enough good intelligence, they started calling
3: you Charlie Toon or chicken of the sea.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Boy, but, is
2: that
3: reality TV. Exactly. Um, so do you think that kind of cable tapping uh, still goes on today? Uh, we had an ex-CIA uh, senior officer on recently who talked about the threat of, uh, in the current context of our struggles with Russia over Ukraine, that uh, Russian submarines have the capability to tap our internet cables now. Um,
2: That's what I've, that's what I understand. Um, And I think it does, you know, when fiber optic cable came in, there was a lot of discussion about whether it could be tapped or how much harder it would be to tap. But we know from some of Snowden's revelations, um, you know, it is tapped. And I've seen a lot on the internet about how, how you can do it. It presents different problems. Um, we still have one special project sub, the Jimmy Carter, uh, that um, uh, has a whole hundred foot section added in the middle. And it follows on the four that had come before it that had done various missions like cable tapping, um, retrieving parts from missile tests uh, on the seabed, other things like that. And so, you know, basically, when you look at the world today, you've got to assume that uh, we're using that submarine to try to tap any cables. When you think of China, uh, you think of, you know, still Russia, obviously, even more so right now and North Korea uh, with all the missile tests. If there are cables out there that can be tapped uh, or maybe some other occasional rogue nation, I would think they would target them. And the same thing with the recovering pieces of test missiles, you know, uh, North Korean missiles splashed down on the Sea of Japan, China, and the South China Sea. And obviously, you can learn a lot about the missiles if you can recover nose cones or other, other pieces.
3: So the USS Jimmy Carter is uh, dedicated to that kind of snooping and uh, espionage and recovery of missiles and so on. Exactly. Is that the only submarine we have doing that, or are there a number of them?
2: No, that's the main one uh, because it takes a lot of special equipment. Literally, they they put a whole hundred foot section in the middle of the submarine. You know, they would cut these submarines in half and put this section in that had the special equipment to do these things. And um, there were other submarines that could aid them, and there are other submarines that would go out with them. Uh, Uh, We talked in our book about one time the Parchi, Jimmy Carter's immediate predecessor, was off of Murmansk, the Soviet northern port, and it always had at least one escort regular attack sub, and if the Soviets seemed to the Russians, now Chinese, whoever seemed to detect that important project sub, uh, this uh, attack sub was supposed to make noise and create a diversion and try to you know uh get them
3: away from it Hmm. Uh, so there have been confrontations of a sort between american russian and chinese uh submarines
2: well there were during the cold war there were probably about 15 collisions between american subs and russian subs um there were wow just like you mentioned the episode with the guy looking at the periscope at the dock, there was a, uh, uh, another submarine captain who uh, our submarine got detected, got too close to a Russian ship. He looks up the periscope, up the, out the periscope, and he yells to his crew, uh, "Dive!" I've never, <laughs> I've never seen a, a such a um, effing big red mustache as that sailor who's pointing at us right now. Uh, uh-huh. You know, there would be confrontations in the old days of diesel subs, the, the Russians would drop uh, depth charges, uh, usually smaller ones just to try to scare the Americans away. Um, but w- there are new problems now, you know, when you think back, I mean, on the one hand, you know, the Soviet Navy was huge and it was a blue water Navy and there, you know, it was a real epic confrontation. Uh, you know, China, you know, only has Four, five, six nuclear subs. I mean, the Russians have been modernizing theirs a lot, um, but it's a different ball game in the sense that even in the middle of the Cold War, once the missile subs for the Russians, uh, once they developed missiles that could strike the U.S. from basically their homeland, you know, they realized that we were successful at trailing their missile subs in the open ocean. One of our Captains had followed a Soviet sub 47 days in the ocean without losing it to where it was patrolling so we could take it out if a war started. So they started holding their submarines back under the ice near Russia. So they're much harder to get to. And the Chinese hold their submarines close to home in the South China Sea, which is one of the most crowded waterways and hard to get into undetected. Um, So it's a lot more difficult. You know, one of the big missions of submarines was to track other submarines and especially missile submarines to take away not just that possibility of a nuclear Pearl Harbor, but especially take away that second deterrent uh, uh, reserve, you know, that Russia might have or China might have. And so that's still a mission, but it's harder to do than, than ever now.
3: Let me ask you about a scene in Red October <laughs> in which uh, they talk about the submarine commander doing crazy Ivan's uh, moves to elude an American sub. Is that true?
2: That's true. That's true. And we described them in the book. And in fact, this guy who Whitey Mack, six foot six captain, always stooped in his submarine on the USS lepon was trailing this, this Russian sub out in the Atlantic uh, the 47 days. And every now and then that was because the Russian sensors weren't as good as the U.S. ones. And because if you get right behind a submarine, uh, it, it it's called the baffles and, and the water, you know, hydrodynamics and everything. The, that submarine in front, their sonar can't pick you up if you're right, you know, almost drafting them like a race car right behind them. And so to make sure they weren't being followed every now and then, the Soviets would just do a quick U-turn and come roaring back on the path they had been mm-hmm. on. And so that that was how some collisions happened. And what the U.S. subs learned pretty quickly was follow behind them, but be down a couple hundred, you know, a hundred feet lower, so that if they did the crazy Ivan, they roared above you, not right into you.
3: So because the Soviet or Russian submarines and Chinese submarines can carry nuclear missiles icbms that can reach the united states from almost everywhere so this is one of the most urgent tasks we have uh in the military is closely following russian and chinese subs and 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 to a degree that we can take them out before they launch missiles
2: uh theoretically you know that was that was the goal if a nuclear war had started or uh Based on you know land-based missiles or whatnot, uh, then the, the aim was for our attack subs to try to take out in the Cold War, you know, try to take out the Soviet subs, take away that second strike capability. Um, the Chinese, so far their missiles, you know, barely reached the west coast. They're working on bigger ones, and that's from you know, if they keep them close to home in the South China Sea but their aim they're spending a lot of money and their aim is is you know they're building new subs their aim is by 2030 to do a lot more and the goal they talk about is by 2050 you know having as big a, a military force as we do which you know we'll see what happens but the problem is they have is that their subs are still noisier than american subs and russian subs and the noisier you are that's how you get detected you know we call the book blind man's bluff because these subs are out there, they can't see each other. It's all based on sonar and sensors. And our subs are very quiet. The Russian subs are very quiet now. The Chinese are still louder. So they don't send them out into the open ocean much. And and so their range is constricted still. But they're mm-hmm. working on quieter ones.
3: You know, one of the interesting things about all this, as you point out and you pointed out in your book years ago. Is that despite all the stealth and secrecy and uh, you know many layers of classification and so on, that there were Russian moles <laughs> in the CIA and in the Defense Department who gave it all away. So, <laughs> so uh, it's amazing. Yes, we the, and- the famous Walker family spy ring, and they and they gave up uh, the Navy codes, the crypto codes. Right. And there was an NSA employee named
2: Ronald Pelton who told the Soviets about the first of the cable taps
3: for thirty
2: five thousand dollars. He was paid. And, Mm. you know, so that's
3: against our billions and billions spent on submarines and stealth technology. And here was a guy for thirty five thousand dollars, a trader in the NSA who gave it away to the Russians. And they from then on knew where we were tapping and could supply those information channels with false information so exactly. this is right down to mad magazine spy versus spy and you wonder what is all worth
2: well in the end that's what we kind of postulated it toward the end of the book you know i mean the cable tapping was the single biggest most sensitive thing uh that the submarines did and do and the president has to approve every mission himself and um interestingly after the soviets found that cable tap on their pacific side jimmy carter i mean it's 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 so funny that interesting that the special project sub that exists today is called the jimmy carter because you know the military establishment intelligence people didn't like jimmy carter when he was president thought he was too, you know he wanted to kill the b-1 bomber um even though he had been in the nuclear submarine force uh for a bit um but even a, even after the Russians, um, I mean, Jimmy Carter approved the second tap, which was the far more dangerous one where the Rus- Russian northern fleet is, you know, without flinching. And even after the Russians, after Pelton sold out that first tap location on the Pacific coast of Russia, we continued to tap for another decade, the cable right near the heart of their main northern fleet. Uh, so. Um, but when you look at it overall, you know, we concluded, I mean, we spent, like you said, billions and billions to use the cable tapping to get right inside their minds, you know, get their instructions to, I mean, we we were able to tape, the U.S. was able to tape their nuclear plans, like where the missile subs would go hide, you know, when they were on alert, when they went on alert in 1983. And so all that was very valuable. But on the other hand, for 35,000 with Pelton for uh, Johnny Walker and his ring gave so much away for very little money. Uh, in the end, we felt like each side mm-hmm. wanted to get inside the other side mind, and, and each side did in a different way, and maybe mm-hmm. that was, maybe it was more stabilizing that both of them knew what the other was up to: you huh. know?
3: <laughs> That's funny. that's a great irony that actually the espionage of knowing what each other did actually keep, kept each other sides. East Side Calm, Um, what do you suspect that submarines, uh, what role do you suspect submarines are playing in the current conflict with Russia over Ukraine?
2: Well, I suspect they're mainly, uh, you know, probably watching uh, the Russian submarine fleet up north a little more closely and the missile subs in case Putin does more, you know, headed toward a nuclear thing. I don't think there's very much for them to do, um, You know, they can't really go to the Black Sea. I mean, we would have to tell Turkey like two weeks in advance we want to try to get a sub in the Black Sea. Well,
3: Well, let me stop you right there. What do you mean that we don't go into the Black Sea unless we notify Turkey in advance? Why do we have to do that?
2: Well, there's a convention from the 1920s that controls the Black Sea, and so we're not actually supposed to, if you're not a country there, uh, bordering on the Black Sea uh, you have to get turkeys okay and in advance we sent a couple of destroyers into the Black Sea in late January but for a submarine to go um, you know it, I mean it would be a dangerous passage through the Dardanelles if you tried to go submerged but and you, and if you go on the surface then what's the point you're giving it away and um, you know we have surface ships that have cruise missiles and you know, there's not much for a submarine to do in this confrontation between Russia and Ukraine. So I, I wouldn't imagine we would even try to do
3: that. Yeah, it doesn't make sense to be uh, peddling around in that little bathtub of the Black Sea, which is totally dominated, of course, by the Russians. Our, you know, you, you chronicle, uh, and we've known about many disasters, many submarine disasters and you talk about one in i think it was 1949 um when we were trying to monitor the first soviet nuclear tests uh are submarines a lot safer now or do you know of any other dis- recent disasters that are not generally known
2: um they they're a lot safer that you're talking about the fire on a sub that was actually conducting one of the very first uh, intelligence runs off the soviet coast in 1949 Um, What's been interesting is that as the years went by, you know, our book, as you you captured so well in your review, was really a story of the men who did this and the risks they took and what kind of men they were. And there are a lot of colorful, colorful characters. But, you know, the book also traced the progression of the technology and the mission. And so over time, the technology got better uh, in every aspect, safety. Um, the sensors got better, so submarines didn't have to go quite as close to pick up the same information. And you might say in sort of in the same way that in, in the 50s, we had spy planes uh, and you know still have spy planes along the coast of, of hostile countries, um, but where the Russians were shooting down spy planes, once we went to satellites, as I said, it becomes more antiseptic And even with submarines, you still got all these men on board, but you don't have to go as close to get as much information once the sensors all become better. And but there's still, you know, one of our subs in the South China Sea just last October uh, ran aground on an unmarked undersea mountain. What more can you tell us about that? Well, the Navy's been pretty, pretty guarded about that. Uh, It was... um, one of our bigger attack subs. And I think that, um, I did a story for the New York Times back in 2005 about the USS San Francisco, another sub that smashed into an uncharted seamount. and 90 something of the sailors were hurt. One of them was killed and it barely limped back. This one, 11 were injured. Um, I think you're in a crowded, in the South China Sea, you're in a crowded area that's not as clearly uh, mapped you know maybe as other areas because um you know you've got fishing vessels commercial vessels you know the Chinese have a lot of diesel subs that can patrol it so it's a hard environment to work in so I suspect we don't have it all charted as beautifully as and, and part of these missions is to help help chart this too um, I
3: suspect that captain's career was also dinged by yeah. running into an undersea mountain
2: I think he and a couple of officers under him were all relieved as soon as they
3: as soon as they got back. Yeah, there's no room for error down there. No, exactly. I'm curious, this stuff is so sensitive. Why do why did people talk to you about this incredibly sensitive stuff back in the 1990s and beyond?
2: I think that in the 1990s we started, you know, we actually worked on the book part time for seven, seven, eight years. And at the beginning, people didn't want to talk. I mean, the Soviet Union had just collapsed and people in the Navy and in, in the intelligence world were worried initially that it would swing back, you know, the way it has now. But then as, as we went through the 90s with Yeltsin uh, there and, you know, the Soviet Navy. When,
3: when the Soviet Union was collapsing.
2: Yeah. And the Russian Navy was, you know, in poor straits. I mean, sailors were living on beach beach submarines, uh, you know, because they had nowhere to put them And, and wow. they were dumping reactors from old subs in the in the Barents Sea. And, you know, with no regard to the environment because they didn't Lord. know. Lord, it was a mess. So it didn't look through the nineties like the Russians would turn around and come back, you know, in a hostile way, the, the way they are now. And so I think there was a feeling during that period, I mean, we might have caught it at the right moment, uh, that all these men, and it wasn't just the men, it was the admirals, it was high-level national security officials we talked to in every administration during the Cold War, defense secretaries and national security advisors. Um, There was a feeling that these men had done something remarkable and nobody knew it. You know, they went out there for months at a time, they couldn't tell their families, they couldn't tell their... wives and kids you know when we did book signings you know i had wives of some of these divers who you know were out right under the soviet harbors basically with soviet warships overhead tapping cables and wives in tears saying i had no idea what my husband was doing until i i read your book and so it was a real catharsis for them and so when the history channel did a documentary about the book You know, even Bob Gates agreed to be interviewed and he didn't refer to cable tapping per se, but he talked with great admiration for the courage of the men who went out and did the special things we needed to do. And of course they all knew who he meant. And I think there was a sense of awe. Again, so much of intelligence is, you know, is electronic and and safe in that sense. And there was a sense of awe you could see with people like Bob Gates then of all these men who had put their lives on the line, you know, to
3: gather this. That was really a special period, and I think for people who weren't really grown up at that time and aware following the news, it's hard to imagine what it was like back then, from our vantage point now of after 20 years of constant war, um, that there was this period of relief and joy in the early and mid 1990s, that the Cold War was over, the Russians had lost, there was a a triumphant feeling here, and so you were able to tap into that, no pun intended, um, Mm -hmm. where these incredibly brave Navy sailors and the people who commanded them had, you know, they wanted to tell their stories, almost like, you know, all the stories about World War II that came out following the war through the 1950s and so on. There was a feeling that we won, isn't this great um, somebody even, you know, postulated that history was over, that we wouldn't have any conflicts anymore. Well, there was really a golden era. But now here we are, actually in the most direct conflict with the Russians since, I don't know, the Berlin airlift in 1948. Um, uh, Putin's talking about nuclear warfare if he's uh, threatened. So we're back to where submarines are... Now playing a very important and stealthy role again in intelligence gathering and and um, counter threats to anything that Putin might do.
2: No, it's fascinating because not only did the Russian Navy kind of fall apart in the 90s, but then after that, you know, they really didn't come out to sea very much. They didn't have the resources. The the, the submarines were old, and in the last decade or so, he's rebuilt their nuclear submarine arsenal. He's still got more being built. He's modernizing that force again. And so our Navy, our submarine force had basically quit watching them during the Cold War for a period. During the Cold War, we had subs off every one of their ports constantly. And then we went through a period in the late 90s, 2000s, where we didn't go up there so much. And now, like you said, it's back to that same
3: kind of Worry about them that we had at the height of the Cold War. And we are eyeball to eyeball with them, 20,000 leagues beneath the sea. Definitely. Christopher Drew, so great to have you on the podcast. I have a feeling we're going to be back talking about submarines and espionage again in the near future, God willing that we don't have a catastrophic nuclear war. Thanks again. Thank you, Jeff.
1: That was Christopher Drew, co-author of Blind Man's Bluff, the untold story of American submarine espionage. He currently teaches reporting at LSU, where he leads the Manship School of Mass Communications experiential journalism curriculum. Stay with us back in a moment to talk with Nellie LaHood about the bin Laden papers. But first... A reminder to subscribe to the podcast and subscribe also to Jeff's Spy Talk substack, which breaks a lot of news and offers great analysis. And hey, follow us on Twitter, Jeff's at Spy Talker. I'm at Jean Meserve. Back in just a second. Welcome back. After the shock and horror of the 9-11 attacks, Osama bin Laden loomed large in the American consciousness. We went to war in Afghanistan, hoping to destroy him and his organization, Al Qaeda. But jihadi movements sprang up elsewhere. There were other attacks, and there was a perception that the man who toppled New York's Twin Towers was behind them. But during the raid on bin Laden's Abbottabad compound, Navy SEALs stayed on the ground for an additional 18 minutes to retrieve hard drives on them 6,000 pages of personal letters, notes and journals. Nellie Lahoud, an Islamic scholar, has translated and organized this trove of information and in so doing explodes many of the myths around bin Laden. Her new book, The Bin Laden Papers, How the Abbottabad Raid Revealed the Truth About Al Qaeda, its leader and his family. I asked her first what the papers tell us about the man himself.
0: As it turns out, from the bin Laden papers, we now know, for instance, that it was bin Laden and not Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who actually got the idea of flying planes into buildings to carry out the 9-11 attacks. And uh, we know this because in one of his handwritten notes, um, he writes on a sheet of paper, just two paragraphs, he mentions that the, the idea came to him when he was listening to the news back in, uh, on the 31st of October, 1999. On that day, um, Egypt flight, New York to Cairo, crashed off the New England coast, killing about 217 people. And so Bin Laden writes um, on this sheet of paper, he said that upon hearing the news, I turned to the brothers who were with me at the time, and I told them, why didn't he crash it into one of the financial towers? So clearly for bin Laden, he would have liked this to be uh, um, a political statement. The pilot had some vengeful motives that had nothing to do with bin Laden or Al-Qaeda, but this is where the idea came from for, for bin Laden. We also see his planning on display vividly throughout many other papers. Uh, particularly those in which he planned attacks against the United States. Uh, these we see them in letters that he composed in 2004, and subsequently later on in 2010. And again, um, his methodical mind is all on display, and and it is vivid. Um, so from that respect, um, I don't really think we gave him enough credit for his planning before, and and but. I guess the sort of person, the the myth or the image that Bin Laden was commanding and controlling jihadi groups around the world, um, this is clearly now debunked as a result of his papers. To start with, the papers make it really clear that Bin Laden uh, did not use the internet or the telephone. And didn't step outside of his own compound for years. So, the possibility for him to be an effective leader and giving timely orders was just simply not possible. We find Al Qaeda's leaders unable to exercise much influence over these jihadi groups, except for one group in North Africa, Al Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb. Most of all, the, the rest of these other uh, jihadi groups that acted in Al Qaeda's name—they um, were more of a headache for Al Qaeda uh, uh, than in Assad. Why so, a headache? Because you know, initially Bin Laden was excited when the first the first merger that happened was with um, the group in Iraq uh, that was led by Abu Musab al-Zarqawi. Now, by that time, we know that in the aftermath of the operation enduring freedom um, and the collapse of the Taliban regime, Al Qaeda was shattered, And bin Laden had to disappear from the scene. That's according to the letters. And Al Qaeda didn't regain its operational capabilities. So
1: So so the the US US and Western intelligence really miscalculated here, right? They did not realize at the time, as I recall, that they were, um, to use the word you do in the book, a- afflicted.
0: Right. No, exactly. You're absolutely right. The letters, when when bin Laden communicated with his associates, was able to re- resume communication, that was in 2004. And his, um, the 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 leaders, the the second tier leaders who were uh, who are still at large communicated to him that al-qaeda they communicated to him their afflictions to use the word that you just said that was from the letters they spoke of their trouble their aimlessness the, the harrowing time so um, al-qaeda was as i said shattered the um in, in fact the u.s-led invasion of afghanistan really uh shattered al-qaeda al-qaeda did not anticipate that the u.s would go to war And the other thing that they did not anticipate is that the Taliban would collapse so quickly. So when this happened, um, Al-Qaeda had no plan A, not even a plan A. So um, they were faced with a grim predicament. Um, And here's why. What we now know from the letters is that uh, during the war, according to the letters, the air campaign was targeting Arabs, and at a certain point, Mullah Omar came under pressure um, from the tribal leaders in Afghanistan, and he issued order order um, asking, commanding the Arabs to evacuate from Afghanistan altogether. Now, uh, this was this was a this was a very serious problem that. Uh, Al-Qaeda and other jihadi groups faced, because we're not just talking about um, fighters who might be agile and nimble. They had often multiple wives and children. And uh, this was the reality they faced is that they, were, they had nowhere else to go. So their, uh, the, the first escape option for them was to head to Pakistan. That made sense to them. And when they got to Pakistan, they were, um, they encountered a large campaign of arrests, both according to the letters in major cities and in minor, uh, in, in minor cities. And about, according to the letters, 600 brothers or even more were captured. So here they had no, the others had no other option but to go and head to Iran and they crossed illegally into Iran where they were eventually detained. But all of this was happening when bin Laden had disappeared from the scene. And he had no idea about exactly what happened.
1: So I remember covering Homeland Security. I started covering it on 9-11. And every time there was a terror incident around the world, uh, there was sort of a reflexive response on the part of US officials to say, hmm, we're investigating to see if Al-Qaeda is behind us, to see if this was inspired by Osama bin Laden. Again, was the U.S. was the were Western intelligence agencies totally off base in their assessment of how strong and influential he was?
0: So let me uh, um, let me say, I mean, as you can tell from from the book, uh, I am critical of all the you know the the major perception that we've heard about Al Qaeda. But uh, before I talk about intelligence failures, it's worth Talking about some of the difficulties they encountered and some of their successes. Um, the successes, it is very clear from the papers, for instance, that the CIA drone company was very, very successful in the Fatah and the federally administered tribal areas of Pakistan where Al-Qaeda eventually um, sought refuge. So that is that is an intelligence success. The other thing is there there is a difficulty in terms of knowing what happened to Al Qaeda, because as I said earlier, it was impossible to penetrate communications between Osama bin Laden and his associates. So communications within Al Qaeda's top echelon was very, very difficult, precisely because bin Laden didn't use any modern technology that would allow surveillance methods to be able to penetrate and intercept these, these, uh, uh, these communications. So, What happened to al-Qaeda, al-Qaeda's operational impotence was very challenging for the international community to um, work out, particularly because though bin Laden um, stopped communicating for three years with his associates, he still was able to send out public statements cheering other jihadi jihadi attacks around the world. And so did Ayman al-Zawahiri, his deputy. But cheering is different from doing. It's not the same thing as doing. So, in terms of understanding what was happening within Al Qaeda and its uh, and its capabilities, I can appreciate why this was very very challenging for the intelligence community. Um, and, and it is frankly excusable. Now, what is less excusable is the fact that uh, the other Al Qaeda's role in global jihad. Should have been able, they should have been able to assess it more wisely. So there were many differences that were not appreciated, um, differences within jihadi groups, within the jihadi landscape, that were not sufficiently appreciated by the intelligence community.
1: I'd love to go through a couple of the big reveals um, in these papers. One of them has to do with women uh, and the role that the women around bin Laden played. it was my preconceived notion that women played a totally subservient role. And yet, what you found out is that they were key to his messaging, at least. So one of the
0: first letters that I read, the, the letters that were declassified by the CIA in 2017, one of the first letter was by Osama bin Laden's third wife, Siham. She was writing to her daughter, who is in North Uzairistan. And in the first paragraph, she tells her daughter, I'm writing to you in haste because uh, I'm busy. i've I've been busy working with on your father's public statements. so uh, so that was that was a uh, that was a moment for me, as you can appreciate. i mean the the jihadi the jihadi leaders have always spoken and encouraged about women being very important uh, for the cause of jihad because it is up to women to bring up their children to love jihad to incite their men to be steadfast and to fight in God's path so women's role have always has always been um, appreciated by jihadi leaders and but but we know their women into their their role in terms of in terms of mothers sisters um, uh, and and so on I like you, I didn't expect that they would have this, this important role in the Bin Laden household. And um, and what was what was very interesting is that uh, Bin Laden's daughter his daughters Mariam and Sumeya, have actually effectively co-authored much of the many of the public statements that we've heard him deliver over the
1: years. Another thing that you talk about in the book is the fact that um, Western intelligence might have been wrong about who it was who eventually led them to bin Laden. So, according to the
0: CIA narrative, Abu Ahmad al Kuwaiti was bin Laden's courier, and this is how they managed to track him down. Um, Abu Ahmad al Kuwaiti is the person who lived next door in the same compound, along with his brother, and both of them were killed during the raid. Now, it became very, very evident to me from the letters that Abu Ahmad al-Kuwaiti was not the Korea. Um And, uh, and I, <laughs> I, 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 didn't, I didn't expect to uncover how the CIA managed to, uh, uh, to, to get to bin Laden's hideout. And um, to be clear, I did not benefit from any discussions with the CIA. So I really have no idea what went right for the CIA, but I have a pretty good idea of what went wrong for Osama bin Laden. And let me say what happened uh, according to the letters. Um, bin Laden, you know these issues of, 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 of the courier and how the letters were transmitted the very vague references in the letters. These things are not discussed in the letters for security reasons, obviously. But out of thousands of pages, um, one letter ended up discussing this process. At the time, Bin Laden, as I said, was preparing to celebrate the 10th anniversary of 9-11, and he wanted to produce all these, um, all these public statements. And he thought maybe to hasten the uh, release of his statements, maybe he should send them directly to the jihadi media um, as-Sahab. And his top associate in Waziristan tells him, "Well, I thought long and hard about this, and I suggest that you don't do that uh, because this is this is not a good idea." And then he goes on to explain to him at that point what the process was like, and we find out from this letter that um, there was an intermediary on the part of the leaders in North Waziristan and only one leader in North Waziristan knew of that intermediary. There is another intermediary on bin Laden's side. And, um, uh, uh, and this is the person that I think was probably in Peshawar. And this is where bin Laden's wife um, stayed when she was stuck. And there is a courier in between. Now, The intermediary in North Waziristan had an inkling maybe these letters were um, between, uh, uh, were either about from bin Laden or to bin Laden or maybe Ayman al Zawahi. The courier had no clue what he was delivering. So so this this was a very, very complicated process. And Abu Ahmad al Kuwaiti played a very, very minor role in terms of between communications and, or to Abbottabad, uh, a very minor role in, in that. And I think what happened is that at a certain point, we know from the letters, that the intermediary on the North Waziristan side was captured briefly by the ISI. We don't know what happened, but we know that he was captured at a certain point. Now, this intermediary and the courier are brothers law And in January, 2011, the courier gets captured by the ISI. We don't know how the letters um, ended up making it to Abbottabad between January and April, because there were letters. Um, maybe they took additional risks. And I think I was very, very surprised that even bin Laden was concerned and still didn't do anything about it. Because on April 26th, as he sat down with his daughter to write a letter to his top associate Atia, he mentions the capture of the courier, and he tells his associate, "Be careful about reaching out to your intermediary because of the capture of um, of the courier." And um, and then, well, while he put this in his notes, he didn't put it in the actual final letter at the time. Bin Laden had a lot going on. He really wanted to reunite his family. And he was indeed a, a family man, a devoted father and caring husband. And that, that worked, you know, that was fortunately probably his downfall. So though he put it in his notes, and I expected him at that time to be, to start packing. Um, it, because, because it showed me clearly that he was concerned and I suspect this is how his own
1: security was compromised. Are there one or two big questions that still need to be answered even after you've waded through all of these documents?
0: One piece that intrigues me, and only the intelligence community uh, would be able to respond to this question. And you know, I, if they are listening, I could keep a secret. Um, I would love to know how much of the material that I've worked on was already deleted and that they recovered after it was deleted. The reason I say this is because bin Laden should have destroyed all his communications. About a month before the raid, his top associate in North Waziristan, Aitia, writes him a 12-page letter, and at the end of that letter, a P.S., you know, I've destroyed all the SIM cards on which we've been saving our correspondence. Just a gentle reminder there for you to do the same. Um, so clearly, the protocol was to destroy communications. Um, did Bin Laden think that he was deleting them, or did he keep them uh, because he couldn't let go? I don't know. I'd be very, very curious to find out. I know, I know that they were able. Um, to recover things that were already deleted because there are certain items that could not have belonged to the bin Laden's that were recovered. Um, but I don't know how many of the letters were recovered because of the impressive technological abilities that they have to recover deleted material. So um, I'd be very curious about that.
1: That was Nellie Lahoud, author of the new book, The Bin Laden Papers. She is a senior fellow with the New America Foundation's International Security Program. Lahoud talked at the beginning of that interview about Bin Laden's meticulous planning. The papers revealed that he had mapped out in exquisite detail additional attacks on U.S. railroads and shipping, attacks that, thank goodness, never materialized. And that's it for this edition of Spy Talk. Remember to subscribe, leave us a review, and subscribe to Spy Talk on Substack. Jeff will be back next week. I'm Jean Meserve. Thanks for sharing your time with us. For more original reporting and insights like this, subscribe to spytalk.co on Substack and follow us on Twitter at talk underscore spy. If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.